We originally did this story about a year ago and just came back to it recently, knowing that there was more to tell. Actually, a story within a story. The story of the miracle of the sun, probably the most witnessed religious miracle in modern history, involves three shepherd children in Portugal who witnessed a series of heavenly apparitions climaxing in an event witnessed by tens of thousands. The story within, that still needs telling, is that of a series of prophecies that were given to these children by an apparition they recognized to be the Virgin Mary on July 13, 1917. These prophecies, called the Three Secrets of Fatima, were not revealed by the children until 1943, when two of the secrets were revealed. The third was written and placed in a sealed envelope and asked not to be opened until 1960, the reason for given that it would appear clearer at that time. The text of that third secret wasn't released by the Catholic Church until the year 2000 by Pope John Paul II. We share both stories in this episode, the story of the miracle of the sun and the story of the three secrets of Fatima. A personal interjection here, I pronounce Fatima one way, others say Fatima. My apologies if my version differs from what might be considered to be correct. This also applies to the names of any towns or locales mentioned in the story. Also, I am not Catholic, but I have a huge respect for people who are not afraid to show their faith, and I keep an open mind when it comes to miracles. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. A miracle is defined by Merriam-Webster as a very amazing, wonderful, and unusual event often believed to be caused by the power of God. On Sunday, October 13, 1917, a huge group of believers, estimated between 30,000 and 100,000 in number, gathered in a farm field in Portugal called Cova de Aria near the town of Fatima, at the behest of three shepherd children who had been given a series of prophetic religious visions culminating in an invitation for people to gather at that field at noon on that day. Word spread. The faithful arrived by the tens of thousands, and for about ten minutes they witnessed the miracle of the sun, also called the miracle of Our Lady of Fatima. A reporter from the Lisbon newspaper who was at the scene described it this way. The silver sun, enveloped in a gauzy gray light, was seen to whirl and turn in the circle of broken clouds. The light turned to a beautiful blue, as if it had come through the stained glass windows of a cathedral, and spread itself over the people who knelt with outstretched hands. People wept and prayed with uncovered heads in the presence of a miracle they had awaited. The seconds seemed like hours, so vivid were they. What had happened? Who were these children who predicted the miracle? What visions did they have? In the days, months, and years after this event, skeptics have tried to debunk what so many people witnessed that day, using every known excuse, from sundogs to mass hysteria to unusual solar activity to eye strain from staring at the sun, always forgetting to mention that the event was predicted right down to the day, time, and place. 
The story begins in a small rural hamlet in Portugal in 1915, about 10 miles from the town of Fatima. There is a Catholic church in the area, and the families and children are very devout and lead simple lives based upon farming and raising livestock. The families and community are tied together through their faith and marriages, and the children have no lack of brothers, sisters, and cousins. The principal character in this story is Lucia Santos, who, at the age of seven, witnesses a holy apparition while tending sheep with her young cousins. This is the first of many incidents which will eventually test her faith, divide her family against her, make her question her own sanity, have her brought to jail along with her young friends for interrogation as to the truth of her stories about these apparitions, and draw her tiny community into the epicenter of an event in 1917 that will be regarded as one of the greatest miracles ever witnessed. Lucia would go on to become a sister and servant of the Lord throughout her long life, leaving behind wonderful detailed writings about her family and life growing up in Portugal during World War I. The excerpts from her writings titled Fatima, in Lucia's own words, will follow as she tells the story here. We begin at a chapter titled The Apparitions, Lucia the Shepherdess. Up to this point in the story, Lucia has been describing her life as a child, including making her first communion. She will often refer to Your Excellency as she was a practicing sister and was directed to submit all her writings through church hierarchy for approval. She writes, This was how things were until I was seven years old. My mother then decided that I should take over the care of our sheep. My father did not agree, nor did my sisters. They were so fond of me that they wanted an exception made in my case. My mother would not give in. She's just like the rest, she said. Carolina is already 12 years old. That means she can now begin to work in the fields, or else learn to be a weaver or a seamstress, whichever she prefers. The care of our flock was then given to me. News that I was beginning my life as a shepherdess spread rapidly among the other shepherds. Almost all of them came and offered to be my companions. I said yes to everybody and arranged with each one to meet on the slopes of the Sarah. Next day, the Sarah was a solid mass of sheep with their shepherds, as though a cloud had descended upon it. But I felt ill at ease in the midst of such a hubbub. I therefore chose three companions from among the shepherds, and without saying a word to anyone, we arranged to pasture our sheep on the opposite slopes. These were the three I chose, Teresa Matthias, her sister Maria Rosa, and Maria Justino. On the following day, we set out in the direction of a hill known as the Cabeco. We went up the northern slope. Valinos is a place that Your Excellency already knows by name, is on the southern side of the same hill. On the eastern slope is the cave I have already spoken of in my account of Jacinta. Together with our flocks, we climbed almost to the top of the hill. At our feet lay a wide expanse of trees, olives, oaks, pines, home oaks, and so on, that stretched away down towards the valley level below. Around midday we ate our lunch. After this, I invited my companions to pray the rosary with me, to which they eagerly agreed. We had hardly begun when, there before our eyes, we saw a figure poised in the air above the trees. It looked like a statue made of snow, rendered almost transparent by the rays of the sun. "'What is that?' asked my companions, quite frightened. "'I don't know.' We went on praying, with our eyes fixed on the figure before us, and as we finished our prayer, the figure disappeared. As was usual with me, I resolved to say nothing, but my companions told their families what had happened the very moment they reached home. 
The news soon spread, and one day, when I arrived home, my mother questioned me. Look here. They say you've seen I don't know what up there. What is it you saw? I don't know, as I could not explain it myself. I went on. It looked like a person wrapped up in a sheet. As I meant to say that I couldn't discern its features, I added, You couldn't make out any eyes or hands on it. My mother put an end to the whole matter with the gesture of childish nonsense. After some time, we returned to our flocks to the same place, and the very same thing happened again. My companions once more told the whole story. After a brief interval, the same thing was repeated. It was the third time that my mother heard all these things being talked about outside without my having said a single word about them at home. She called me, therefore, quite displeased and demanded, Now let us see what it is that you girls say you saw over there. I don't know, mother. I don't know what it is. Some people started making fun of us. My sisters recalling that for some time after my first communion, I had been quite abstracted, used to ask me scornfully, Do you see someone wrapped in a sheet? I felt these contemptuous words and gestures very keenly, as up to now I had been used to nothing but caresses. But this was nothing, really. You see, I did not know what the good Lord had in store for me in the future. I will add here that the following year, in 1916, Lucia was with different companions when another apparition, that of an angel, appeared multiple times. She writes, Around this time, as I have already related to Your Excellency, Francisco and Jacinta sought and obtained permission from their parents to start taking care of their own flock. So I left my previous companions and joined my cousins, Francisco and Jacinta, instead. To avoid going to the Sarah with all the other shepherds, we arranged to pasture our flocks on properties belonging to my uncle and aunt and my parents. One fine day, we set out with our sheep for some land that my parents owned, which lay at the foot of the eastern side of the slope of the hill that I have already mentioned. This property was called Chausavelha. Soon after our arrival, about mid-morning, a fine drizzle began to fall, so fine that it seemed like mist. We went up the hillside, followed by our flocks, looking for an overhanging boulder where we could take shelter. Thus it was for the first time that we entered this blessed hollow among the rocks. It stood in the middle of an olive grove belonging to my godfather, Anastasio. From there you could see the little village where I was born, my parents' home, and the hamlets of Casavella and Era de Pedra. The olive grove, owned by several people, extended to within the confines of the hamlets themselves. We spent the day there, among the rocks, in spite of the fact that the rain was over and the sun was shining bright and clear. We ate our lunch and said our rosary. Our prayer finished, we started to play pebbles. We had enjoyed the game for a few moments only, when a strong wind began to shake the trees. We looked up, startled, to see what was happening, for the day was unusually calm. Then we saw coming towards us, above the olive trees, the figure I have already spoken about. Jacinta and Francisco had never seen it before, nor had I ever mentioned it to them. As it drew closer, we were able to distinguish its features. It was a young man, about 14 or 15 years old, whiter than snow, transparent as crystal when the sun shines through it, and of great beauty. On reaching us, he said, Do not be afraid. I am the angel of peace. Pray with me. Kneeling on the ground, he bowed down until his forehead touched the ground and made us repeat these words three times. My God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love you. I ask pardon of you for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not hope, and do not love you. Then rising, he said, Pray thus, the hearts of Jesus and Mary are attentive to the voice of your supplications. His words engraved themselves so deeply on our minds that we could never forget them. 
From then on, we used to spend long periods of time, prostrate like the angel, repeating his words, until sometimes we fell exhausted. I warned my companions right away that this must be kept secret, and, thank God, they did what I wanted. I will add again at this point, this angel appeared again to the children, identifying himself as the angel of Portugal, and asking for the faith and sacrifice it would require to bring peace. The angel also spoke of very hard times ahead, this being in the years just prior to World War I. Lucia continues as troubles mount in her home. Her family had lost property now, and her sisters had left home to take on work as servants to make money for the family. Times were tough. She continues, My poor mother seemed just drowned in the depths of distress. When we gathered around the fire at nighttime, waiting for my father to come in to supper, my mother would look at her daughter's empty places and exclaim with profound sadness, My God, where has all the joy of our home gone? Then, resting her head on a little table beside her, she would burst into tears. My brother and I wept with her. It was one of the saddest scenes I have ever witnessed. What with longing for my sisters and seeing my mother so miserable, I felt my heart was just breaking. Although I was only a child, I understood perfectly the situation we were in. Then I remembered the angel's words. Above all, accept submissively the sacrifices that the Lord will send you. At such times, I used to withdraw to a solitary place so as not to add to my mother's suffering by letting her see my own. This place was usually our well. There on my knees, leaning over the edge of the stone slabs that covered the well, my tears mingled with the waters below, and I offered my suffering to God. And here I will add, between May and October 1917, Lucia and her cousins Jacinto and Francisco Marto reported visions of a luminous lady who they believed to be the Virgin Mary in the Cova da Aria fields outside their hamlet of Algestrel near Fatima. The visitations took place on the 13th day of each month at approximately noon for six straight months. The only exception was August when the children were detained by the local administrator. That month they did not report a vision of the lady until after they were released from jail some days later. This incarceration, initiated for the purpose of having the children admit that they were lying about the visions, was portrayed in the 1952 movie The Miracle of Our Lady of Fatima from Warner Brothers. This movie does an excellent job of telling her story truthfully, and we highly recommend it. Lucia writes about the days she, Jacinto, and Francisco were first interrogated and then forced to stay overnight in prison in the town of Orem, where they were threatened with torture and even death to force an admission that they had been lying about the visions. Not many days later, our parents were notified to the effect that all three of us, Jacinta, Francisco, and myself, together with our fathers, were to appear at a given hour on the following day before the administration in Vils Nova Orum. This meant that we had to make a journey of about nine miles, a considerable distance for three small children. The only means of transport in those days was either our own two feet or ride on a donkey. My uncle sent word right away that he would appear himself, but as for his children, he was not taking them. They'd never stand the trip on foot, he said, and not being used to riding, they could never manage to stay on the donkey. And anyway, there's no sense in bringing two children like that before court. My parents thought the opposite. My daughter is going. Let her answer for herself. As for me, I understand nothing of these things. If she is lying, then it is a good thing that she should be punished for it. Very early the next morning, they put me on a donkey and off I went, accompanied by my father and my uncle. I fell off the donkey three times along the way. I think I've already told you, Your Excellency, 
how much Jacinta and Francisco suffered that day, thinking I was going to be killed. As for me, what hurt me most was the indifference shown me by my parents. This was all the more obvious, since I could see how affectionately my aunt and uncle treated their children. I remember thinking to myself as we went along, how different my parents are from my uncle and aunt. They risk themselves to defend their children, while my parents hand me over with the greatest indifference, and let them do what they like with me. But I must be patient. I reminded myself in my innermost heart, since this means I have the happiness of suffering more for love of you and for the conversion of sinners. This reflection never failed to bring me consolation. At the administration office, I was interrogated by the administrator in the presence of my father, my uncle, and several other gentlemen who were strangers to me. The administrator was determined to force me to reveal the secret and to promise him never to return to Cova de Aria. To attain his end, he spared neither promises nor even threats. Seeing he was getting nowhere, he dismissed me, protesting, however, that he would achieve his end, even if it meant that he had to take my life. He then strongly reprimanded my uncle for not having carried out his orders, and finally let us go home. I add here, in other writings she describes the time spent with the prisoners at Orem, who were not hardened criminals, and who took pity on the children, taking time to listen with them, pray with them, and let them know they were safer with them than with the authorities. All this only to return home and face again the doubts and broom beatings administered by her mother. She writes of one of many rough moments with her mother as the apparitions continued and people began arriving from around the region, asking to be led to where the next apparition was to take place. She writes, I have seen it, my mother often said, that my children always told the truth, and I am now to let the youngest get away with a thing like this? If it were a small, just a small thing? but a lie of such proportions, deceiving so many people and bringing them all the way here? After these bitter complaints, she would turn to me saying, Make up your mind what you want. Either undo all this deception by telling these people that you've lied, or I'll lock you up in a dark room where you'll never see the light of the sun. After all the troubles I've been through, and now a thing like this to happen? And my sisters all sided with my mother, and all around me, the atmosphere was one of utter scorn and contempt. Then I would remember the old days and ask myself, where is all that affection now that my family had for me just a short while ago? My one relief was to weep before the Lord as I offered him this sacrifice. It was on this very day that in addition to what I have already narrated, Our Lady, as though guessing what was going on, said to me, Are you suffering a great deal? Don't lose heart. I will never forsake you. My immaculate heart will be your refuge and the way that will lead you to God. Around that time, our parish priest came to know of what was happening and sent word to my mother to take me to his house. My mother felt she could breathe again, thinking the priest was going to take responsibility for these events on himself. She therefore said to me, Tomorrow we're going to Mass, first thing in the morning. Then you are going to the Reverend Father's house. Just let him compel you to tell the truth, no matter how he does it. Let him punish you. Let them do whatever he likes with you, just so long as he forces you to admit that you have lied, and then I'll be satisfied. My sisters took my mother's part and invented endless threats just to frighten me about the interview with the parish priest. I told Jacinta and her brother all about it. We're going also, they replied. The Reverend Father told our mother to take us there too, but she didn't say any of those things to us. Never mind. If they beat us, we'll suffer for love of our Lord and for sinners. Next day I walked behind my mother, who did not address a single word to me the whole way. I must admit that I was trembling at the thought of what was going to happen. During Mass I offered my suffering to God. 
Afterwards, I followed my mother out of the church, over to the priest's house, and started up the stairs leading to the veranda. We had climbed only a few steps when my mother turned around and exclaimed, "'Don't annoy me any more. Tell the Reverend Father now that you have lied, so that on Sunday he can say in the church that it was all a lie, and that will be the end of this whole affair. A nice business this is, all the crowd running to the covadiaria just to pray in front of a home oak bush?' Without more ado, she knocked on the door. The good priest's daughter opened the door and invited us to sit down on a bench and wait a while. At last, the parish priest appeared. He took us into his study, motioned my mother to take a seat, and beckoned me over to his desk. When I found that his reverence was questioning me quite calmly and with such a kindly manner, I was amazed. I was still fearful, however, of what was yet to come. The interrogation was very long and, I would venture to say, tiresome. His reverence concluded with this brief observation. It doesn't seem to me like a revelation from heaven. It is usual in such cases for our Lord to tell the souls to whom he makes such communications to give their confessor or parish priest an account of what has happened. But this child, on the contrary, keeps it to herself as far as she can. This may also be a deceit of the devil. We shall see. The future will show us what we are to think about it all. Our story continues. On the next to last visit of the apparition of the lady, Lucia, having suffered through the doubt and accusations of those closest to her, including her own priest, and seeing the grief her family had suffered, asked the Virgin Mary to please provide some kind of tangible proof that people could witness that would settle all the doubt that had plagued her testimony and stories through the past years. During the night of October 12th, it had rained throughout, soaking the ground and the pilgrims who made their way to Fatima from all directions by the thousands. By foot, by cart, and even by car they came, entering the bowl of the cova from the Fatima-Liaria Road, which today still passes in front of the large square of the basilica that's been built there. From there they made their way down the gentle slope to the place where a trestle had been erected over the little home oak of the apparitions. Today, on the site, is the modern glass and steel Capelhina Little Chapel, enclosing the first chapel built there, and the statue of Our Lady of the Rosary of Fatima, where the home oak had stood. As for the children, they made their way to the cova amid the adulation and skepticism which had followed them since May. When they arrived, they found critics who questioned their veracity and the punctuality of the lady who had promised to arrive at noon. It was well past noon by the official time of the country. However, when the sun arrived at its zenith, the lady appeared as she had said she would. Apparently two apparitions were being seen. One apparition of the Lady of the Rosary being seen by the children. The second, the phenomenon of the sun, which was seen by the 70,000 or so spectators present. Lucia describes the latter in her memoirs. After Our Lady had disappeared into the immense distance of the firmament, we beheld St. Joseph with the child Jesus and Our Lady robed in white with a blue mantle beside the sun. St. Joseph and the child Jesus seemed to bless the world, for they traced the sign of the cross with their hands. When, a little later, this apparition disappeared, I saw Our Lord and Our Lady. It seemed to me that it was Our Lady of Sorrows. Our Lord appeared to bless the world in the same manner as St. Joseph had done. This apparition also vanished, and I saw Our Lady once more, this time resembling Our Lady of Carmel. Our story continues. This would be the last of the apparitions of Fatima for Jacinta and Francisco. However, for Lucia, 
Our Lady would return a seventh time in 1920, as she had promised the previous May. At that time, Lucia would be praying in the cova before leaving Fatima for a girls' boarding school. The Lady would come to urge her to dedicate herself wholly to God. As the children viewed the various apparitions of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, the crowd witnessed a different prodigy, the now famous Miracle of the Sun. It's good to keep in mind that from 1917 to 1920, the Church's position regarding the Fatima apparitions was one of prudent reserve and silence, as is the practice of the Church in similar circumstances. She refrained from passing judgment on the event until a thorough investigation was conducted. At the time of the apparitions, the Portuguese clergy were reluctant to encourage belief in them, and many actually discouraged the laity from going to Fatima. The Portuguese clergy acted in this way in a large measure because of the recent persecutions suffered by the church in Portugal at the hands of the anti-Catholic Masonic government. With the pain of the terrible persecution still fresh in their mind, the clergy did not want to take any steps that would further provoke the government's wrath. Although President Sidonio Pais had struck down many of the country's anti-Catholic laws by 1918, which in turn led to his murder by his Masonic brethren in late 1918, the Portuguese clergy were fearful to take actions that would incite their return. The apparitions of Our Lady of Fatima indeed provoked strong opposition from many sides, from the local government, as illustrated by the August 1917 kidnapping of the three children by the village administrator. From the Freemasons, as exhibited by the destruction of the Capelinha that took place in March of 1922, and even from the press, which was controlled by the Masons, and which scorned the apparitions, until witnessing the October 1917 miracle of the sun. Thus, from every quarter that fostered disdain and hatred toward God and his church, strong opposition to the events at Fatima was exhibited. Nevertheless, in spite of silence and discouragement on the part of the Catholic clergy, and the patent scorn and opposition from the secular realms, the Portuguese people maintained their belief in, and support of, the Fatima apparitions. As a testament to the power of the laity, the number of witnesses present at the Cova de Aria grew from a mere 50 in June of 1917 to the crowd of 70,000 that witnessed the October miracle. Even after the cycle of apparitions ended, while awaiting official ecclesiastical approval, the faithful continued to visit, in pilgrimage, the sacred place where the Mother of God had appeared. The most widely reported descriptions of the events that took place that day are found in the writings of John de Marchi, an Italian Catholic priest and researcher who spent seven years interviewing people who witnessed the event and wrote the book The Immaculate Heart in 1952. Here are some of the statements taken from de Marchi's writings. This from Avelino de Almeida, writing for Oseculo. Oseculo was Portugal's most widely circulated and influential newspaper. It was pro-government and anti-clerical at the time. Almeida's previous articles had been to satirize the previously reported events at Fatima. He writes, Before the astonished eyes of the crowd, whose aspect was biblical as they stood there bareheaded, eagerly searching the sky, the sun trembled, made sudden incredible movements outside all cosmic laws. The sun danced according to the typical expression of the people. The next from Dr. Domingos Pinto Coelho, writing for the newspaper Ordem. The sun, at one moment surrounded with scarlet flame, at another, aureoled in yellow and deep purple, seemed to be in an exceedingly swift and whirling movement, at times appearing to be loosened from the sky and to be approaching the earth, strongly radiating heat. 
The next from Dr. Almeida Garrett, professor of natural sciences at Coimbra University. The sun's disk did not remain immobile. This was not the sparkling of a heavenly body, for it spun round on itself in a mad whirl, when suddenly a clamor was heard from all the people. The sun, whirling, seemed to loosen itself from the firmament and advanced threateningly upon the earth, as if to crush us with its huge fiery weight. The sensation during those moments was terrible. This from Dr. Manuel Formijao, a professor at the seminary at Santerum, and a priest. He had attended the September visitation and examined and questioned the children in detail several times. He writes, As if like a bolt from the blue, the clouds were wrenched apart, and the sun at its zenith appeared in all its splendor. It began to revolve vertiginously on its axis like the most magnificent fire wheel that could be imagined taking on all the colors of the rainbow and sending forth multicolored flashes of light, producing the most astounding effect. This sublime and incomparable spectacle, which was repeated three distinct times, lasted for about ten minutes. The immense multitude, overcome by the evidence of such a tremendous prodigy, threw themselves on their knees. And this from Reverend Joachim Lorenko. I feel incapable of describing what I saw. I looked fixedly at the sun, which seemed pale and did not hurt my eyes. Looking like a ball of snow, revolving on itself, it suddenly seemed to come down in a zigzag, menacing the earth. Terrified, I ran and hid myself among the people, who were weeping and expecting the end of the world at any moment. Marchi wrote this of the people he interviewed who were present that day. He writes, Their ranks included believers and non-believers, pious old ladies and scoffing young men. Hundreds from these mixed categories have given formal testimonies. Reports do vary. Impressions are in minor details confused, but none to our knowledge has directly denied the visible prodigy of the sun. And now we arrive at the three secrets of the Fatima. On July 13, 1917, around noon, the Virgin Mary appeared to Lucia, Jacinta, and Francisco and entrusted the children with three secrets— Two of the secrets were revealed in 1943 in a document written by Lucia at the request of Jose Alves Correa de Silva, Bishop of Leira, to assist with the publication of a new book on Jacinta. When asked by the bishop in 1943 to reveal the third secret, Lucia struggled for a short period, being not nearly convinced that God had clearly authorized her to act. However, in October of 1943, the bishop ordered her to put it in writing. Lucia then wrote the third secret down and sealed it in an envelope, not to be opened until 1960, when it would, in her words, appear clearer. The text of the third secret was not released by the Church until 1960. It was released by Pope John Paul II 40 years later, in the year 2000, amidst a roar of controversy, claiming that not only had the Church suppressed it due to its content, but that the document they released was a forgery and not the entire secret revealed by Lucia, despite repeated assertions by the Vatican to the contrary. According to the official Catholic interpretation, the three secrets involve hell, World Wars I and II, and the attempted assassination by gunshot of Pope John Paul II. The first secret was a vision of hell. Our Lady showed us a great sea of fire which seemed to be under the earth. Plunged in this fire were demons and souls in human form, like transparent burning embers, all blackened or burnished bronze, floating about in the conflagration, now raised into the air by flames that issued from within themselves, together with great clouds of smoke, 
now falling back on every side like sparks in a huge fire without weight or equilibrium, and amid shrieks and groans of pain and despair, which horrified us and made us tremble with fear. The demons could be distinguished by their terrifying and repulsive likeness to frightful and unknown animals, all black and transparent. The vision lasted but an instant. How can we ever be grateful enough to our kind Heavenly Mother, who had already prepared us by promising, in the first apparition, to take us to heaven? Otherwise, I think we would have died of fear and terror. The second secret, as Lucia writes, was a statement that World War I would end, along with the prediction of another war during the reign of Pope Pius XI, should men continue offending God, and should Russia not convert. The second half requests that Russia be consecrated to the Immaculate Heart. She writes, You have seen hell where the souls of poor sinners go. To save them, God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my Immaculate Heart. If what I say to you is done, many souls will be saved, and there will be peace. The war is going to end, but if people do not cease offending God, a worse one will break out during the pontificate of Pope Pius XI. When you see a knight illumined by an unknown light, know that this is the great sign given to you by God that he is about to punish the world for its crimes by means of war, famine, and persecutions of the Church and of the Holy Father. To prevent this, I shall come to ask for the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart and the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. If my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted, and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. The good will be martyred. The Holy Father will have much to suffer. Various nations will be annihilated. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. The Holy Father will consecrate Russia to me, and she shall be converted, and a period of peace will be granted to the world. Footnote. The great sign allegedly appeared on January 25, 1938, in the months leading up to Germany's attack on Poland, which marked the beginning of World War II. As reported in the New York Times of that day, Aurora Borealis startles Europe. People flee in fear. The celestial display was seen from Canada to Bermuda to Austria to Scotland, and shortwave radio transmissions were shut down for almost 12 hours in Canada. RCA reported it was the second most powerful electrical disturbance in a 100 years. The lights were not seen over the Pacific Ocean, and radio traffic was uninterrupted in that region. The third part of the secret was written down by order of His Excellency the Bishop of Laria and the Most Holy Mother on January 3rd of 1944. In 1943, Lucia fell ill with influenza and pleurisy, which had killed her cousins. For several months, she was sure she was going to die. Bishop Silva, visiting her on September 15th of 1943 while she was bedridden, first suggested that she write the third secret down to ensure that it would be recorded in the event of her death. Lucia was hesitant to do so, however. At the time she received the secret, she had heard Mary say not to reveal it, but because Carmelite obedience requires that orders from superiors be regarded as coming directly from God, she was in a quandary as to whose orders took precedence. Finally, in mid-October, Bishop Silver sent her a letter containing a direct order to record the secret, and Lucia obeyed. In June of 1944, the sealed envelope containing the third secret was delivered to Silva, where it stayed until 1957, when it was finally delivered to Rome. It was announced by Cardinal Sodano on May 13th of 2000, 
83 years after the first apparition of the lady to the children in the Cova Diarrhea that the third secret would finally be released. In his announcement, Cardinal Sodano implied that the secret was about the 20th century persecution of Christians that culminated in the failed assassination attempt on Pope John Paul II on May 13th of 1981, the 64th anniversary of the first apparition of the Lady at Fatima. The text of the third secret, according to the Vatican, was published on June 26th of 2000, and this was the official announcement from the Vatican. The third part of the secret revealed at the Cova de Aria Fatima on July 13, 1917. I write in obedience to you, my God, who command me to do so through His Excellency, the Bishop Laria, and through your Most Holy Mother and mine. After the two parts which I have already explained, at the left of Our Lady and a little above, we saw an angel with a flaming sword in his left hand, flashing. It gave out flames that looked as though they would set the world on fire, but they died out in contact with the splendor that Our Lady radiated towards him from her right hand. Pointing to the earth with his right hand, the angel cried out in a loud voice, Penance! 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 And we saw an immense light that is God, something similar to how people appear in a mirror when they pass in front of it, a bishop dressed in white. We had the impression that it was the Holy Father. Other bishops, priests, men and women, religious going up a steep mountain, at the top of which there was a big cross of rough-hewn trunks, as of a cork tree with the bark. Before reaching there, the Holy Father passed through a big city, half in ruins and half trembling with halting step, afflicted with pain and sorrow. He prayed for the souls of the corpses he met on his way. Having reached the top of the mountain, on his knees at the foot of the big cross, he was killed by a group of soldiers who fired bullets and arrows at him. And in the same way there died one after another, the bishops, priests, men and women religious, and various lay people of different ranks and positions. Beneath the two arms of the cross there were two angels, each with a crystal apressorium in his hand, in which they gathered up the blood of the martyrs, and with it sprinkled the souls that were making their way to God. Along with the text of the secret, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, the future Pope Benedict XVI, published a theological commentary in which he stated, A careful reading of the text of the so-called third secret of Fatima will probably prove disappointing or surprising after all the speculation it has stirred. No great mystery is revealed, nor is the future unveiled. After explaining the differences between public and private revelations, he cautions people not to see in the message a determined future event. The purpose of the vision is not to show a film of an irrevocably fixed future. Its meaning is exactly the opposite. It is meant to mobilize the forces of change in the right direction. Therefore, we must totally discount fatalistic explanations of the secret, such as, for example, the claim that the would-be assassin of May 13, 1981, was merely an instrument of the divine plan guided by providence, and could not therefore have acted freely, or other similar ideas in circulation. Rather, the vision speaks of dangers and how we might be saved from them. He then moves on to talk about the symbolic nature of the images, noting, The concluding part of the secret uses images which Lucia may have seen in devotional books, and which draw their inspiration from long-standing intuitions of faith. As for the meaning of the message, he writes, what remains was already evident when we began our reflections on the text of the secret, the exhortation to prayer as the path of salvation for souls, and likewise the summons to penance and conversion. 
Now, I don't know about you, but it seems strange that the Catholic Church would wait 40 years to release Lucia's secret if it was the non-event that they describe. No wonder there has been, and continues to be, so much controversy. The Holy See withheld the third secret until June 26 of 2000, despite Lucia's declaration that it should be released to the public after 1960. Some sources, including Canon Barthes and Cardinal Ottaviani, said that Lucia insisted to them it must be released by 1960, saying that by that time it will be more clearly understood, and because the Blessed Virgin wishes it so. Instead, in 1960, the Vatican published a press release stating that it was, quote, most probable the secret would remain forever under absolute seal, end quote. This announcement produced considerable speculation over the content of the secret. According to the New York Times, speculation ranged from, quote, worldwide nuclear annihilation to deep rifts in the Roman Catholic Church that led to rival papacies, end quote. On May 2nd, 1981, 11 days before the assassination attempt that Cardinal Sodano later implied in 2000 had been prophesied in the third secret, Lawrence James Downey hijacked an airplane and demanded that Pope John Paul II make public the third secret of Fatima. The release of the text sparked immediate criticism, even outrage, from the Catholic Church in Portugal. Clergy as well as lay people were offended that the text had been read in Rome and not at the Fatima Shrine in Portugal, where the reported events took place. Portuguese Catholics responded to the release of the text with disbelief, saying that if the words did not concern some kind of terrible catastrophe, such as war, holocaust, or apocalypse, there had been no reason for the Vatican to keep them secret. The Times, in June of 2000, reported that the revelation on Monday that there were no doomsday predictions has provoked angry reactions from the Portuguese church over the decision to keep the prophecy secret for half a century. Portuguese newspapers reported that many people felt dismayed, cheated, and betrayed by the news. Some sources claim that the four-page handwritten text of the third secret released by the Vatican in 2000 is not the real secret, or at least not the full secret. These sources contend that the third secret is actually composed of two texts, where one of these texts is the published four-page version and the other is a single-page letter containing the words of Virgin Mary that have been concealed. Critics such as Italian journalist Antonio Sochi and American attorney Christopher Ferrara have written many articles disputing that the full third secret has been released. Their argument for proof of a second part to the secret includes the following. 1. Bishops working with Pope Pius XII, Pope John XXIII, and Pope Paul VI have commented that the text was written on one sheet of paper rather than four sheets. 2. Lucia stated that she wrote the message in the form of a signed letter to the Bishop of Lyria. 3. Lucia's text is supposed to contain words attributed to the Blessed Virgin Mary. 4. The full secret contains information about the Apocalypse, a great apostasy, and satanic infiltration of the Catholic Church. According to Jacob Matthew in the commentary accompanying the text of the third secret released by the Vatican, quote, Those who expected exciting apocalyptic revelations about the end of the world or the future courts of history are bound to be disappointed. Fatima does not satisfy our curiosity in this way, end quote. Some critics see this as contradicting a considerable amount of evidence in the record, including previous testimony by Cardinal Ratzinger himself. 
In an interview published in November of 1984, Cardinal Ratzinger was asked whether he had read the text of The Third Secret and why it had not been revealed. Ratzinger acknowledged that he had read The Third Secret and stated in part that The Third Secret involves the importance of the novissimi and danger threatening the faith and the life of the Christian and therefore the life of the world. Ratzinger also commented that, If it is not made public, at least for the time being, it is in order to prevent religious prophecy from being mistaken for a quest for the sensational. Also, a news article quoted former Philippine ambassador to the Vatican, Howard D., as saying that Cardinal Ratzinger had personally confirmed to him that the messages of Akita and Fatima are essentially the same. The Akita prophecy, in part, contains the following. The work of the devil will infiltrate even into the church in such a way that one will see cardinals opposing cardinals, bishops against bishops. Father Charles Fiore, in a taped interview, made the following remarks with regard to Cardinal Ratzinger's various statements about the third secret. We have two different Cardinal Ratzingers. We have two different messages. But Malachi Martin was consistent all the way through. He believed that the third secret of Fatima had to do with the internal problems of the Catholic Church. On a syndicated radio broadcast, Father Malachi Martin was asked the following question by a caller. I had a Jesuit priest tell me more of the third secret of Fatima years ago in Perth. He said, among other things, the last pope would be under control of Satan. Any comment on that? Father Martin responded, Yes, it sounds as if they were reading or being told the text of the third secret, but sufficiently vague to make one hesitate. It sounds like it. In a taped interview with Bernard Jansen, Father Martin was asked the following question. Who are the people who are working so hard to suppress Fatima? Father Martin responded, A bunch, a whole bunch of Catholic prelates in Rome who belong to Satan. They're servants of Satan, and the servants of Satan outside the church in various organizations. They want to destroy the Catholicism of the church and keep it as a stabilizing factor in human affairs. It's an alliance, a dirty alliance, a filthy alliance, but a very good alliance. In the same interview, Father Martin also said with respect to Lucia that they've, the Vatican, published forged letters in her name. They've made her say things she didn't want to say. They've put statements on her lips she never made. In May of 2000, Cardinal Sodano announced that the third secret would be released, during which he implied the secret was about the persecution of Christians in the 20th century that culminated in the failed assassination attempt on Pope John Paul II in May of 81. However, other theologians believe that the secret concerns an apostasy of cardinals, bishops, and priests. For instance, Cardinal Chiappi, personal theologian to Pope John Paul II, is quoted by sources as saying, In the third secret it is foretold, among other things, that the great apostasy in the church will begin at the top. In addition, on a syndicated radio broadcast, Father Malachi Martin stated that the third secret doesn't make any sense unless we accept that there will be, or that there is in progress, a wholesale apostasy among clerics and laity in the Catholic Church. In a 1980 interview for the German magazine Steime des Globens, published in October 1981, John Paul II was asked explicitly to speak about the third secret. He said, Because of the seriousness of his contents, in order not to encourage the worldwide power of communism to carry out certain coups, my predecessors in the chair of Peter have diplomatically preferred to withhold its publication. On the other hand, it should be sufficient for all Christians to know this much. 
If there is a message in which it is said that the oceans will flood entire sections of the earth, that from one moment to the other millions of people will perish, there is no longer any point in really wanting to publish this secret message. Many want to know merely out of curiosity or because of their taste for sensationalism, but they forget that to know implies for them a responsibility. It is dangerous to want to satisfy one's curiosity only if one is convinced that we can do nothing against a catastrophe that has been predicted. He held up his rosary and stated, Here is the remedy against this evil. Pray. Pray and ask for nothing else. Put everything in the hands of the Mother of God. Asked what would happen in the church, he said. We must be prepared to undergo great trials in the not-too-distant future, trials that will require us to be ready to give up even our lives and a total gift of self to Christ and for Christ. Through your prayers and mine, it is possible to alleviate this tribulation, but it is no longer possible to avert it, because it is only in this way that the church can be effectively renewed. How many times, indeed, has the renewal of the church been effected in blood? This time, again, it will not be otherwise. We must be strong. We must prepare ourselves. We must entrust ourselves to Christ and to His Holy Mother. And we must be attentive, very attentive, to the prayer of the Rosary. The best way to end this story of the three secrets of Fatima is with the account of Father Augustine, who was the last person to interview Lucia, an interview which took place in 1957. This important conversation of December 26, 1957, was the last public interview with Lucia. After it, permission was refused for any other interviews, and she was effectively silenced and completely hidden away for the next several decades. These are the authentic words of her 1957 conversation with Father Fuentes, which came from the records of the official archivist of the Fatima Father Joaquin Maria Alonso. Father Alonso also spoke with Lucia and publicly testified that her statements to Father Fuentes in 1957 were genuine and true. The text is from his book, La Verdad Sobre el Secreto de Fatima, Fatima Sin Mitos. The Truth About the Secret of Fatima Without Myths. The text has the approval and imprimatur of Archbishop Sanchez of Santa Cruz, Mexico. What follows is the literal translation of Father Fuente's text reporting what he heard from the lips of the seer of Fatima. Speaking to the Sisters of Mother House of the Missionaries of the Sacred Heart in Mexico on May 22, 1958, Father Fuente said, I want to tell you the last conversation I had with her, Sister Lucia, which was December 26th of last year. It was in the convent, where I found her very sad, pale, and drawn. He then proceeded to read Sister Lucy's words to him at the December 26th, 1957 interview. Father, the Blessed Virgin is very sad because no one has paid attention to her message, neither the good nor the bad. The good because they continue on the road of goodness, but without paying mind to this message. The bad because of their sins, do not see God's chastisement already falling on them presently. They also continue on their path of badness, ignoring the message. But, Father, you must believe me that God is going to punish the world and chastise it in a tremendous way. The chastisement from heaven is imminent. It will be very sad for everyone, and far from a happy thing if the world does not pray and do penance before then. I cannot give more details because it is still a secret. By the will of the Blessed Virgin, only the Holy Father and the Bishop of Fatima can know the secret. Both have chosen, however, not to open it in order not to be influenced by it. 
This is the third part of the message of Our Lady, which still remains secret until 1960. Tell them, Father, that the Blessed Virgin said repeatedly to my cousins Francisco and Jacinta, as well as to me, that many nations would disappear from the face of the earth, that Russia would be the instrument of chastisement from heaven for the whole world if the conversion of that poor nation is not obtained beforehand. Father, the devil is fighting a decisive battle against the Virgin, and as you know, what most offends God and what will gain him the greatest number of souls in the shortest time is to gain the souls consecrated to God. For this also leaves unprotected the field of the laity, and the devil can more easily seize them. Also, Father, tell them that my cousins Francisco and Jacinta made sacrifices because they always saw the Blessed Virgin was very sad in all her apparitions. She never smiled at us. This anguish that we saw in her, caused by offenses to God and the chastisements that threaten sinners, penetrated our souls. And being children, we did not know what measures to devise except to pray and make sacrifices. Referring to the vision of hell that Our Lady showed her and Jacinta and Francisco, she said, For this reason, Father, it is my mission not to just tell about the material punishments that will certainly come over the earth if the world does not pray and do penance. No, my mission is to tell everyone the imminent danger we are in of losing our souls for all eternity if we remain fixed in sin. Father, we should not wait for a call to the world from Rome on the part of the Holy Father to do penance. Nor should we wait for a call for penance to come from the bishops in our dioceses, nor from our religious congregations. No, our Lord has often used these means, and the world has not paid heed. So now each one of us must begin to reform himself spiritually. Each one has to save not only his own soul, but also the souls that God has placed on his pathway. Father, the Blessed Virgin did not tell me that we are in the last times of the world, but I understood this for three reasons. The first is because she told me that the devil is engaging in a battle with the Virgin, a decisive battle. It is a final battle where one party will be victorious and the other will suffer defeat. So from now on, we are either with God or we're with the devil. There is no middle ground. The second reason is because she told me, as well as my cousins, that God is giving two last remedies to the world, the Holy Rosary and devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And being the last remedies, that is to say, they are the final ones, meaning there will be no others. And the third, because in the plans of the Divine Providence, when God is going to chastise the world, He always first exhausts all other remedies. When He sees that the world pays no attention whatsoever, then, as we say in our imperfect way of talking, with a certain fear, he presents us the last means of salvation, his blessed mother. If we despise and reject this last means, heaven will no longer pardon us, because we will have committed a sin that the gospel calls a sin against the Holy Spirit. This sin consists in openly rejecting, with full knowledge and will, the salvation that is put in our hands. Also, since our Lord is a very good Son, He will not permit that we offend and despise His Blessed Mother. We have, as obvious testimony, the history of different centuries where our Lord has shown us with terrible examples how He has always defended the honor of His Blessed Mother. Prayer and sacrifice are the two means to save the world. As for the Holy Rosary, Father, in these last times in which we are living, the Blessed Virgin has given a new efficacy to the praying of the Holy Rosary. This in such a way that there is no problem that cannot be resolved by faith, no matter how difficult it is to be temporal or above all spiritual in the spiritual life of each of us 
or the lives of our families, be they our families in the world or religious communities, or even in the lives of peoples and nations. I repeat, there is no problem, as difficult as that may be, that we cannot resolve at this time by praying. Lucia Santos' story stands as a great lesson of faith. Imagine being a child of ten and seeing these visions, only to have your own family treat you as a liar and an outcast, to the point of having your own father escort you to the local jail for two days of questioning and threats, including being threatened with death. Lucia and her friends showed remarkable strength of character and continued to tell the truth about what they had witnessed, understanding well that the truth could cost them their young lives. Lucia Santos moved to Porto in 1921 and at 14 was admitted as a boarder in the school of the Sisters of St. Dorothy in Villar on the city's outskirts. On October 24, 1925, she entered the Institute of the Sisters of St. Dorothy as a postulant in the convent at Toy, Spain, just across the northern Portuguese border. She came back to Fatima on the occasion of four papal pilgrimages, all on May 13th, firstly by Paul VI in 1967, and then John Paul II in 1982 and 2000, when her cousins Jacinta and Francisco were beatified. On May 16th, 2000, she unexpectedly returned to Fatima to visit the parish church. Lucia died at the age of 97 on February 13, 2005, of cardiorespiratory failure due to her advanced age. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We invite you to check out our other stories by joining iTunes or podbay.fm. The links are provided at 1001storiespodcast.com. And you can also join us with comment at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S. We also appreciate your feedback as well as the ideas for new stories. And you can email us at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.